It's All Journalism has always been a labor of love for its producers. We do the interviews, edit the audio, and present weekly podcasts to you free of charge. While we did launch a Patreon page a few years back to great fanfare and little success, we haven't really asked our listeners for financial support. That may change at some point, but for now, we'd like you to continue enjoying our content for free. While we're not asking for your dollars, we would like to ask you to do a few simple things to help our podcast grow. First, subscribe to It's All Journalism on your favorite audio platform. Then, go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Like and share our episodes on social media. Rate and like our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to It's All Journalism. Tell a friend or colleague about It's All Journalism. You can also take one of our anonymous online surveys. These simple actions from our loyal audience can have a huge impact on our podcast's success. You can find out more about our podcast at itsalljournalism.com. So the more people we have working, the more different facets of this very complex problem we're exploring. It's just trying to shine a light on both problems and solutions in as broad a way as possible and to reach as many different people as possible to bring them in to learn more about it. Collaboration is one of those words journalists bandy about. Sometimes a collaboration is in-house, other times it's outwardly focused, involving members of the community, nonprofits, or in the case of this week's podcast, other news organizations. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. According to the U.S. Conference of Mayors 2016 report on hunger and homelessness, Washington, D.C. has the highest rate of homelessness of any other city in the U.S. Since June 2016, D.C. area outlets have banded together to publish the D.C. Homeless Crisis Reporting Project, a joint effort to raise awareness of and examine solutions to the ongoing homelessness problem. At the end of August this year, 10 local news outlets published the latest package of stories at dchomelesscrisis.press. Joining me to talk about this effort are Eric Falcaro, the editorial director of Street Sense Media, Rachel Sedone, the editor-in-chief of DCist, and Chris Kane, the editor and founder of the DC Line. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Eric, Rachel, and Chris. Thanks Thank for having you. us. To hook up your voices with, with your publications, let's just sort of go down the line here. So, Rachel, could you tell me about your organization and what's the sort of the focus of DCist? Sure. So I'm the editor-in-chief of DCist. We're all digital. We've been around for, I should know the answer to this off the top of my head. We've been around since like 2004, sort of in various iterations over time. We're currently owned by WMU, which is Washington's NPR station. And we're a pretty general publication. We cover DC for Washingtonians rather than the halls of federal power. We're interested in and endlessly curious about the city itself, the people that live here, and and what matters to them. And so we like to say that we're a knowledgeable friend, and we cover sort of really the gamut of local D.C. news. Okay. So, Eric, uh, what can you tell me about Street Sense Media? Street Sense is a street newspaper. We were founded in 2003, and when I say that, that's a model that there's 40-some similar papers in the U.S. It's sold by men and women experiencing homelessness, and the content is focused on homelessness. And uh, we've been expanding into other media and put a larger focus on digital for the past five years or so. Okay. And uh, how about you, Chris, the DC Line? What can you tell me about it? Well, the DCLine.org, we launched last June, June 2018, as a, a nonprofit startup. 
and focused on public affairs reporting, again, focused just on local D.C. affairs and what uh, people locally think of as D.C. versus Washington being federal, as uh, Rachel was talking about. We have a real public affairs focus. This year, we got membership into the Institute for Nonprofit News and are looking to grow. And models in the sector include the Texas Tribune and, and Voice of San Diego. So we're really hoping to grow into that kind of an outlet for local D.C. Okay, so clearly three locally focused publications. I say publications in the loosest sense. We all know what we mean here. Obviously, I think, Eric, your publication clearly has a connection with the homeless community. Can you each speak about what your publication's focus on homelessness generally is day to day? Sure, it's twofold. I mean, we try and produce you know quality accountability stories that focus on justice issues for people experiencing homelessness in the city. But we're also writing for a lot of folks that don't know a lot about homelessness. So we spend a lot of time on the human side of homelessness, you know, kind of breaking down some common stereotypes, telling a lot of personal stories. You know, most of our articles start with narrative leads, et cetera. We really try and put a focus on where the rubber meets the road for policy and programs, how people are affected positively or negatively in the homeless community. For us, because we're such a, a general interest publication, it's just one topic among many, and that can make it challenging to do sort of enterprise work. That can make it challenging for us to sort of cover it with the level of intensity and care that Street Sense does. We'll certainly cover political issues, bills before the D.C. Council, sort of major events related to homelessness. We, we cover the annual point in time count, but it's not something that we necessarily have a story on every day or even every week. Balancing that kind of enterprise, those enterprise stories with the weekly and uh, even daily demands is a real challenge because homelessness does relate to so many issues that are really top of agenda in D.C., not just the mayor's plans to close what had been the major family shelter where conditions were legendarily bad um, and replace that with local shelters in each of the wards. But right now, her commitment to affordable housing, uh, encouraging the private sector to build 36,000 homes in D.C. by 2025, with one-third of those being affordable, defined as affordable housing. These are issues that are top of, a, top of agenda. But uh, I think we also struggle with how to keep those stories and some of those continuing debates fresh so that, so that people will, will pay attention to the, to the stories. So I imagine then that having this annual like group project is something that, that allows you to, to dedicate some resources to that and sort of continue to shine light on this project and to you know keep your readership informed about something like this. So I mentioned the 2016 Conference of Mayors report. At the beginning of this, you know, D.C. ranked with the largest homeless population in the country. How bad is the, the homeless situation here in D.C.? I'd say that it's still very intense. There's not been another report by the Conference of Mayors, so I don't have the exact statistic to compare to 2016 for how it's changed. You know, the annual point in time count is going steadily down. The original count is the lowest it's been since they started counting 18 years ago. A lot of the reporting that we do is uh, also focusing on who's not counted and what's not represented in those numbers, right? Like a recent story that we did focused on, you know, D.C. local government has a count of homeless youth. It takes a week to do and goes by a different definition of who qualifies as homeless or not, mainly focused on if you're couch surfing, you're still homeless. You know, if you're doubled up, you'd say. 
when compared to the point in time count results, there were close to 700 homeless youth, which is ages 18 to 24, for uh, the point in time count, where it was 1,300 some on the local DC youth count. It depends how you're counting, uh, who you're counting, what those numbers look like. So we try and delve beyond the count. But if you go by the those numbers, it's going down. And there's a lot of, like Chris mentioned, a lot of plans for new affordable housing, a lot of redevelopment of shelters and, and uh, production for new, better quality shelters. It's going down, but it, there's a lot lot more work to do. And that's acknowledged on all fronts you know, by, by all people in, the, in doing the work. So how did the DC Homeless Crisis Reporting Project come about? It's a copycat. So I read about it in the Times a month before the San Francisco Chronicle. All, all good <laughs> journalists are thieves at heart. Yeah. Um, as long as we're transparent about it, right? <laughs> so the San Francisco Chronicle started organizing a blitz like this four years ago, and New York Times wrote about it, and four different people I know emailed it to me. So I <laughs> learned about it very quickly. And I thought, you know, we can do that. You know, we can recruit other outlets to collaborate proved a little more difficult than, than I thought, but it seemed very possible to convince other folks to do this type of reporting, to do it together for the sake of having a greater impact. And my thought then was that, you know, being in D.C., we could get both nationally focused outlets and locally focused outlets to do that. And it's since sort of evolved to strictly local focus, at least at this point. Well, that first year was us on Think Progress, right? Yeah. The first year it was three three outlets. Us, D.C. has been, been with us every year, thanks to Rachel, and Think Progress. So they were national. We had City Lab last year. You know, we've had national outlets in the mix, but that's not been a constant local focus where we've really had a critical mass of, of folks at, the, at that level. You know, one of the things about this podcast, we're D.C. area based. And, you know, one of the sort of subtexts that we have out there is the fact that D.C. is a very, is in and of itself is a very different community than most people perceive it is. And to see Actually, so many local news outlets is really kind of surprising. It's probably surprising for a lot of people. I think, oh, it's just the Washington Post. The Washington Post covers everything in D.C. We know what that, what the truth of that is. And that D.C. is a very different sort of place than just the federal government and Congress and whatever. It, there's a whole community here with great history, local arts and, and music scene, lots of, you know, an identity of its own. And so... You know, the fact that you have so many local people doing it, you know, I think that's that's great. So what was uh, your original intent in doing this? What were you hoping to accomplish? I am the only paid journalist in my newsroom. So basically looking to expand our focus and our impact in through partnership, right? So trying to meet as many different audience members in as many different places by working with a lot of different outlets and by putting this body of work together. You know, all we work together to share what each newsroom is working on so that we don't duplicate stories. So the more people we have working, the more different facets of this very complex problem we're exploring. It's just trying to shine a light on both problems and solutions in as broad a way as possible and to reach as many different people as possible to bring them in to learn more about it. Okay, and this is probably something I should have asked you when you reached talking about your own publications. Who do you see, each of you see as your, your core audience? Yeah, I talk about this one a lot. I think for us, especially given our origins, people assume that we're talking to millennials, that we're talking to a younger crowd. Often people think that they're transplants, but that's really not the case for us. We really see the entire city as our audience. We try to cover it equally to the best of our abilities. We certainly also cover things out in the suburbs when they have resonance for a greater audience, but we really see our responsibility and our mission covering Washington for Washingtonians 
equally across all sorts of different fault lines of geography, race, class. Something that people often say to me like once a week when they assume this sort of young audience, they're like, did you know I have this aunt? She's 75 years old. She's a judge. I think this is actually a real example. And she loves DCS. Can you believe it? And I'm like, yeah, I can believe it. I hear it a lot. You know, there's only so many outlets focused on local news. And if you care about it, you kind of have to read them all. Maybe a different one is your primary or secondary source. But there's stories that only we have. There's stories that only DC Line has. There's certainly stories that only Street Sense has. And I think we really feel a commitment to not actually defining our audience any narrower than that. Part of what we do, actually, with our daily newsletter, particularly, and uh, the links that we have on our site, is try to bring all of those diffuse media together. Because that's, as as Rachel said, I mean, is it's so hard even to follow all of the different outlets, kind of also so shattered as a as an ecosystem. But in bulk, a lot of things and a lot of stories are being covered. There certainly are gaps, and that's something that we want to fill. As far as our core audience, I think it's the most active people locally. We're squarely focused on D.C., specifically focused just on the uh, District of Columbia. But beyond that, probably our, our initial readers, since we are very new, are the most active uh, active people in D.C. For the, the longest time, our print audience was a lot bigger than our our digital audience. And that's defined by folks that have the disposable income to buy that paper from our street vendors. So that's that core audience has been a little biased. And it's folks that have that sort of charitable inclination or are really seeking to learn more about homelessness. You know, as we've grown, I've been trying to shift more to, you know, serving the folks that we report on and making them more of our core audience. So we're sort of in transition in that respect. One of the benefits of this kind of a program is that um, DCS, the DC line, and the other participants can bring an audience that isn't necessarily looking or really focused on homelessness and um, to hopefully bring attention in so that they, they see aspects of the story and, and learn when they weren't going to be seeking out that information which they might have to do if they're going to read it in in street sense. Right, right. And it's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to talk about the audience, because who's going to be reading this this content that you're bringing out there? And the fact that you can bring in 10 different organizations, you know, hopefully there's some crossover in your audience, but also you're, you're reaching new people who this might not be something that they're seeing every week. And clearly this is not something maybe you have the resources to cover every every week. So tell me about the most recent edition, which came out at the end of August. You know, what were the, the types of topics that you covered? It was a fair amount of coverage. I think we we published around like 10 stories, which is a lot for us on any one given topic. I think that sort of the beauty of this is that there's so many different angles to it. And I remember sort of, you know, talking to an editor who specializes in arts and food content and being like, assign stories about this and sort of looking for things within all of our subbeats that touch on this subject. We also made sure to be following up on stories that we might not have otherwise necessarily followed up on. I like to think that we would have, but there was a case where two folks who had been experiencing homelessness and were sitting or sleeping on a bench late at night were killed by a driver. And for the longest time, we didn't have any information about it. And, you know, we're journalists. It's not often that we publish stories that say, we don't know anything about this. But this sort of gave us an opportunity to say, 
two months after this or a month after this incident had happened. We don't know who the driver was. We don't know if he's been arrested. We don't know the circumstances around this. And also, here's why it happened to have happened on federally controlled land, even though it was in the middle of downtown D.C., and sort of really explaining the contours of this had happened elsewhere, we would know. But because of the situation here, we're still watching this. We're still trying to get information and sort of speaking to that. I don't know what else did we publish this year. <laughs> last year, I know we published a story about sort of what it was like in the last days at this big homeless shelter that was being torn down. That was another story that we may or may not have done otherwise, but sort of forcing us ourselves to sit down and think, OK, what are the different angles to this? Really, I mean, it's yeah. one huge story that has a million different parts to it. The discipline, and it's actually more of an opportunity, the, the Blitz presents mm-hmm. uh, to force kind of that creativity in some enterprise reporting in Stretch Beyond and tying in the breaking stories in public policy in terms of the, the evolution of the shelters or, and to check in on stories. But I think that discipline is a real, actually does become an opportunity. For sure. Yeah, another another aspect of this year's Blitz, it occurred a little bit later than it usually does. It occurred around back to school time, which was the genesis of a couple of our stories that looked at the role, one of which looked at the role um, that homeless liaisons play. These are folks in the school system who are trained to help students experiencing homelessness. And one of the biggest stories of the last couple of years here was the disappearance of a little girl from a homeless shelter, Relisha Rudd. And as it turns out, it was one of these homeless liaisons who had actually, who was the first person to notice that she'd gone missing. And so they're clearly playing an enormous role in the school system, along with sort of just the generally what does back to school time mean for kids experiencing homelessness? And really it means for many a return to stability. So those stories sort of were specifically this year, we're like, oh, this is back to school time. Let's, let's sort of see how we can tie our coverage to that a little bit. Maybe this isn't so much of a problem for for you, Eric, because or maybe it is a problem because it's you know you're focused on on homelessness. But you know I'm sitting here thinking of people who are doing maybe doing projects like this or who want to do a project about homelessness. Where do you begin? I mean, where do you find these stories? At least for us, that was a benefit that we could bring to organizing this project, and that we could say you know we can help with story ideas or we can help with sources. So that gave us a leg up when we first started in that first year, but. I wasn't really helping a lot of folks, a lot of partners with that this year. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to the, the core of what all of us do, right, is get out and talk to people, right? And that's where we, again, have a bit of a leg up in that we have 130 people that are or are formerly homeless that come through our office. So we hear a lot of things before we even step out the door. But that's the, the big thing is getting out to the shelters, getting out to the libraries, et cetera, and getting out to food programs and talking to folks and hearing what they're going through that kind of community listening. Chris and Rachel, tell me about, you know, when you bring this project to your staff and said, we're doing this again this year, what what was sort of the reaction to get that you get? How, how are people invested sort of in this? I think, and I think that our team, including freelancers who we also work with, would identify some of these stories as the ones that they're most proud of. And so I think it's always a little bit stressful because we have a hard deadline, but they're really excited to sort of be developing this sort of work. A couple of years ago, we relaunched, and it was actually around the time of the, of the Blitz. And so we had a particularly healthy amount of time before that one. And one of the stories that came out of that was a long piece about what it's like to be undocumented and homeless, both of which are extremely challenging, much less in combination with one another. And I think that I don't want to speak for the reporter who did that, but I'm pretty sure that she looks back on that and sees that as a really important piece of work in her body of work. And so everybody, I think, is engaged and enthused by the project. I mean, we all wish we didn't 
have to be doing this. I think that there's always sort of an undercurrent of like, wow, there's really still a lot. There's always going to be these stories. There's so many of them. We sort of wish that there weren't. But I've heard from a number of freelancers in particular that they felt really proud that they got a chance to take part in this and that it really was such a community effort among this community of journalists. When I started reporting in D.C. just over 25 years ago, some of the first stories that I did, there was a dispute over a, a homeless shelter in, in Ward 3, and then there were issues about affordable housing. The, the latter, in particular, has only uh, grown in time, but these are issues that have been around a long time. Our columnist, uh, Janetta Rose Barris, was, was happy to uh, use this as an opportunity to kind of dig into the mayor's housing commitments. We also kind of fit in a story that uh, we had been working with with StreetSense on co-publishing a story about the viability of the uh, mayor's housing commitments in terms of spreading out in equitable development throughout the city. It was also an opportunity, one of our writers, kind of followed a, one of the city's homeless outreach specialists or for, for one of the nonprofits that has that and so was able to paint a real picture of uh, what her day was, was like. It's sort of a guide. I guess, you know, what would you recommend if somebody wanted to, to do something like this? How should they go about organizing it? I mean, the biggest asset for me, and I welcome you all to, to uh, weigh in, uh, yeah or nay, is, has just been you know easily collaborative software. I mean, we use Google Drive for everything. And organization, I think, is the big thing. Everything's tracked in a spreadsheet, you know, who's been reached out to as a potential partner and what stories we're all working on. That's one of the biggest tenants is we don't want to duplicate each other's efforts. We want to bring a lot of unique uh, reporting to the project. And the biggest lesson I guess I learned was to you know dream big but have <laughs> low expectations going in. Yeah, again, I was reaching out to probably at least a hundred outlets that first year, and we got three, and it was a great project. DCS came through in a major way. Think Progress came through in a major way, and we've only grown up from there. Each year, I, you know, the first year we got a, a group of people experiencing homelessness together just to have a sit down with the participating journalists. Actually, that was the the second year, and it, it went well. It seemed informative to the folks that were there. I tried to scale up the next year and get a couple different workshops in, and none of them worked out just because all of our schedules are so busy. Everyone is so low on on resources, et cetera. So it's just you know to keep an open mind on what you can experiment with and try out, but also you know have a clear vision of what your your bottom line is, and that's clarified for us over the years. You know, at this point. To participate, they try and keep it pretty low barrier. Each outlet needs to create w- at least one story. It needs to be focused on homelessness. It needs to be different from anything else anyone else, else is doing in the project. So I think that's a, a pretty low barrier. But that explanation, those three bullet points, did not exist four years ago. It was a rambling, you know, big long pitch about what this project would be. So I think just trying to develop a clear vision that people can easily see and follow, and being very open to input from others and building those relationships and, you know, sharing ownership. Yeah, I'm very grateful to have Rachel and, and Chrissy. I don't think this year's project would have happened if they hadn't been reaching out to me saying, hey, when, when are we going to do the Blitz? What's <laughs> this going to look like? You know, that sort of teamwork and just sharing ownership and having a clear. Let's talk a little nuts and bolts here. For the end of August project, when do you start planning it? <laughs> Last August. Uh, well, so so we've always done it on a particular day in June up until this year. And that's been trying to stay in line with the other other cities that are doing this, like San Francisco, Seattle. There's another one out west that had been uh, participating. But this year, that was kind of going back and forth. We couldn't pin it down, so we just scheduled our own, et cetera. And so I think that was probably 
what two months out that we've started talking about yeah it? but none of us did any work and like no <laughs> <laughs> it's your journalist you, you wait till the last week honestly yeah. every year when, every every single every year, single year we're like we're gonna start six months ahead of time <laughs> every year it every takes year. the advanced planning but then um also the scramble in the last few weeks yes yeah. we all work best under that tight deadline is it just initially communicating by uh, like email or are you just saying hey this is these are the deadlines that we're going to be doing. This is what we need everybody to be doing. Just pretty much letting each of the outlets sort of handle their own, you know, creative aspect of it. That's a huge part for me. I, I think uh, Rachel or Chris could could speak to that better. But just, you know, you know your audience best. You know what story is going to work and you know what resources you have. So, you know, c- keeping those limitations as low as possible and, and letting the leaders of each news outlet lead. To try to set too many conditions or... Um, too much control in the lead partner or sweet sense in this case wanting to edit all the stories or or actually dictate what uh, other publications would be covering all that would be recipe for independent media are not going to participate i mean that that's what they're all independent they're all different organizations and so i think that uh, eric's done a good job of organizing this in a way that is collaborative and so that um, you can build on the resources that are so spread out to galvanize to a, to a subject like this. So what type of feedback have you gotten from your audience? There are always a couple of stories that hit harder than others, and we sort of see conversation and discussion about that. But we also see a lot of, this is really important. I'm mm-hmm. glad that you're doing it. We see readers who might not notice an individual story or even three notice 10 <laughs> and <laughs> say, oh, this is something I don't necessarily normally pay attention to. But I see that you're doing it, and I'm glad to see it. I, I mean, I think we've only seen positive feedback. I, I can't I have no memory of anybody ever saying, no, you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> so, yeah. So sort of to wrap up here, could you each give me, you know, your takeaway from participating in this project? What does it mean to you personally? What do you think it means to your organization and your, your readers? Just to plant a seed in case anyone wants to build off of this, I think one of the most important things to me has been growing collaborative work beyond yeah. this project. For, was it maybe a year now, we've been co-publishing stories with the DC Line, and that's a partnership that came out of the Blitz Project a couple of years ago, where you know Chris will send me a story he doesn't have a reporter for, and I'll assign it to one of ours, and we'll both edit, or vice versa. And we are just wrapping up a deal with DCist where we're going to be sharing stories, um, both DCist in Street Sense and Street Sense stories in DCist. And so just being able to, again, reach broader audiences, different audiences, and working together to take all of our limited resources to cover these issues fully is the most important thing to me. So it's been amazing to see that growth beyond just annual projects. Fine. Take what I was going to say, Eric. (laughs) What I was going to say is I've never, I mean, I've been a, a local news journalist here in DC for a long time. I've never seen collaborative work like this. Certainly not the sort of scale of 10 publications working together on to cover a single issue. It's not even that people are that competitive. It's that, I mean, we are. But somebody needs to take a leadership role. I think that's 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 what's happening, yeah. um, And we're all happy to be like, yep, Eric's doing it. This is a good idea. We're happy to get on board. I think we've seen it in other cities. I know Philly has a lot of collaborative projects, or a couple anyway, that have worked really well. And I think we're only going to see more. We also just participated in the Climate Week, Climate covering climate change. (laughs) I should know what it's called offhand, but this was a huge, huge international collaborative journalism project. And it's so clear that we're really amplifying each other's work and and really seeing a much bigger return on investment when we're all sort of working toward 
coverage of something like this and I think that's really the biggest benefit and I, I've been on board every year every year and I will yeah. as long as you're organizing it so for sure for that. <laughs> well, and, I, and I actually uh, had uh, talked to Eric while I was gearing up to launch the DC line to see if we he would uh, take us on as a participant. I think we're in our first or second week when that date fell uh, uh, last year because it happened in, in June. I do think that it's the absence of someone to take a leadership role on some other issues, the opportunity for this kind of collaboration to harness the local reporting, the energetic reporting that is there, but because it's in so many different places and so many different very small newsrooms that lack the resources. And in a lot of cases, are cover, they end up covering the same story 10 times without, if there's not, somehow that collaboration. And so this is a, a chance to kind of step back from that. Yeah, your story is the same as DCS, except that you, you talk to the same three people, and why not? do a different story and somehow uh, uh, complement each other, the work they're showing. A lot of stories today on the Panda that's leaving D.C. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, that's a collaborative project in the waiting. And actually, you know, I was going to wrap this up, but then, you know, you say things that make me think about this. I mean, you obviously seem positive about the this collaboration. Could you see this as something that you might want to do in other areas as well? I mean, Absolutely. There's so many topics like this that are undercovered and that really focusing attention on could yield so many stories. I imagine that you could have an entire podcast just about the bandwidth problem in journalism these days. Yeah. And that's the beauty of this is that it helps solve some of that really. So I, I mean, I think that there's so many different ways that we could be employing this for others, other stories or other topics. And the climate one was actually, I thought, really successful. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the organizers of that do with it. Eric, Rachel, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. You can find out more about this package of stories at dchomelesscrisis.press. I also wanted to thank WAMU for letting us use their studios and apologize to Diane Ream for swearing into her microphone before we started recording. Thank you very much for uh, coming on. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. And if you hurry, there's still time to score your own It's All Journalism coffee mug by taking one of our anonymous online surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.